0: Hello everyone and welcome once again to New Books in the American West. I'm your host, Stephen Hausman. I'm very excited today to welcome Connie Chang to the channel. Dr. Chang is a professor of history and environmental studies at Bowdoin College and is the author previously of Shaping the Shoreline, Fisheries and Tourism on the Monterey Coast, as well as several articles that have appeared in such journals as the Journal of American History and Environmental History, as well as elsewhere. Today, we're discussing her newest book, Nature Behind Barbed Wire, an environmental history of the Japanese-American incarceration, which just came out this past summer with Oxford University Press. Welcome to the New Books Network, Connie. Thanks so much
1: for having me, Steve.
0: We always begin these interviews by letting the authors talk a little bit about themselves. So, if you would, can you tell us a little bit about how you became interested in history and the path that you took toward becoming a professional historian?
1: Yeah, I think this really didn't begin for me until I was in college. I'm not um, one of those people who had some sort of inspiring high school history teacher or anything like that. Um, but my first quarter at UC Santa Barbara, I took a class with the late Robert Kelly, who um, is the author of "Battling the Inland Sea," um, among other really terrific books that are really central to understanding certain aspects of the of the political history of California. And um, I remember telling myself, okay, I'm going to go to the office hours and it's a big school, but I really want to take advantage of this experience. So I visited his office hours um, probably the second or third week of the semester to talk about a research paper. And I was really struck by his, um, his warmth, um, his intelligence, his incredible passion for studying the past. He talked about my research paper. He immediately rattled off five books I needed to go get at the library. And I was just really struck by that experience, that one-on-one interaction that I had with them that I could sort of imagine myself um, you know, many years down the line uh, being in the same position as him, or at least I wanted, I aspired to that. Uh, So that was one experience. And then later that year, my first year of college, I took a big history of Western civilization course. And the professor for that course very often started class with a piece of classical music that he would then describe from that era, or uh, sometimes a very long story about a person or an event, and um, use those that piece of music or those stories to sort of um, highlight the bigger themes or questions of whatever topic we were exploring at that time. So that experience really highlighted for me the importance of story and narrative for studying the past. That wasn't just names and dates, and so on and so forth, but there there was something really powerful about the stories that he told. So those two experiences, my first year in college, really really got me hooked in history and really um, um, made me want to pursue this as a career.
0: And what got you interested in the topic of this book, the topic of um, Japanese-American incarceration during World War II?
1: Right, so um, starting in graduate school, the first class I was a teaching assistant for Big survey of U.S. history. Uh, one of the books that the professor assigned was Monica Sonne's *Nisei Daughter*, which is a very well-known memoir. Uh, the the Monica Sonne grew up in Seattle in the twenties and thirties. Her family was sent to Minidoka in Idaho during the war. It's a very, very powerful memoir of her experiences. Uh, so I remember teaching that my first uh, time as a teaching assistant, and in subsequent courses, I feel like it's a it's a topic that. I was constantly teaching about um, starting in graduate school, and I continue to teach it as a professor at Bowdoin, whether I was teaching the history of the American West or California history, or uh, for many years, I taught a seminar on memoirs, and I would very often assign a Japanese-American incarceration memoir. So it's just a topic that I've always found to be very powerful. I think students find it to be very powerful. It really disrupts the sort of progressive narrative of, of the American Past, that there was this massive violation of civil liberties during during the war. So uh, it's always been a topic that I've been drawn to, and I think it's a, a, a very powerful topic to teach about as well. So uh, I guess I could one can say that I've been interested in this, this area for, for many years now, ever since I started project school.
0: And speaking solely for myself, it's the kind of topic that I felt like I knew at least the basics of, but that your book in particular reveals a lot of kind of more layers to. And looking at this topic from the perspective of the the non-human environment is, I I think, a new approach on what is a pretty old and, like I was saying, somewhat well-known topic. So what led you to thinking about the history of Japanese-American incarceration using the methodologies of environmental history as your methodological lens?
1: Right, right. And I get this question a lot. And I, I wish I could say I had this like single like aha moment
0: where you know
1: <laughs> I, like I just realized that this was the, the right way to write sort of project for me. So but it was really more sort of a, a cum, accumulation of lots of reading and teaching of this and sort of just kind of over a period of several years kind of realizing, huh, all of these all of these memoirs talk about the experience of the environment. pick up any incarceration memoir and there's always some mention of the weather. There's always a mention of the winds, the dust. It was really hot. It was really cold. It it sort of pervades um, the experiences of Japanese Americans. So I think over time it just sort of dawned on me, you know, this really needs some more um, comprehensive treatment. And I should say that there are certainly many scholars before me who have looked at bits and pieces of this. There have been individuals who have looked at the gardens, for instance, in the camps. And Others who have, have looked at um, uh, agriculture, for instance. So it's not something I don't think I was necessarily you know, carrying a brand new or delving into something that had never been explored before. But I really wanted to bring a more sort of comprehensive um, analysis of the non-human environment to this, as you as you've noted, a very well-worn topic.
0: And you open the book with um, a brief couple-page note about language. And since we're going to be talking about many of the terms that you clarify in that part of the text, it might be useful here to talk a little bit about those terms and why you chose to use the particular words that you did in the book itself.
1: Right. So the the term that is most often used and continues to be used uh, in reference to this episode is internment. And uh, that's the term that I initially used when I started working on this project. But I learned very quickly uh, that internment is a, a term that has been the source of a great deal of debate among scholars, among activists, among survivors of the camps and their their descendants. And really, I think Roger Daniels, the historian, uh, provides a, a very compelling reason why internment is not the best term or the really the appropriate term to be using in association with this episode. And, and his and other other scholars' um, uh, explanation is simply that internment technically refers to the treatment of enemy aliens during the war. And if you look at the 110, 120,000 people of Japanese ancestry who were sent to camps during the war, about two-thirds of them were American citizens. So they were born on U.S. soil, and as a result, they were... Uh, citizens by virtue of their birth, uh, so internment doesn't really apply to them, and so he and others, myself included, have rejected using that term simply because it doesn't really fully encapsulate the experiences of all of the individuals who were um, sent to camps during the war. So, in the book, I use the word, and the t- as the title suggests, I use the word incarceration. Um, that term itself is also highly problematic, mm-hmm. and I and I and I acknowledge that. Right, incarceration can be. Um, can be thought to imply that someone that these individuals had committed crimes which they had not um committed crimes and so I, I i had to be very upfront about acknowledging the problems of the terms that i that i use while also rejecting use of other terms so that internment is a big one the other the other um term is concentration camp again very often has been used continues to be used in association with the the camps uh, uh the war relocation camps uh that Japanese-Americans were confined in during the war. Uh, but scholars likewise have suggested that concentration camp uh, is problematic because it's very hard for many people to disassociate the term concentration camp from the Nazi death camps. And there really is not a parallel between the Nazi death camps and the uh, Japanese-American incarceration camps. And this, uh, the Japanese-American incarceration camps for all their austerity we not death camps. They are not places where an act of genocide was happening. So, so hence, I, I shot. I don't use the word concentration camp either, and typically just use the word camp, or incarceration camp, or, or what have you. So, um, there's no perfect term. Uh, so, and again, this has been the, the subject of a great deal of debate among scholars. but I try my best to at least be upfront about the terms that I am using, recognizing their their shortcomings, while also um, explaining why I think other other words are better
0: yeah I actually really like when uh historians and scholars put those notes about language at the beginning of their text because words matter and the the way that we frame and talk about the events that we study that will shape the way that people perceive them so I appreciated that note right
1: right And, and to be honest nowadays um anyone who writes about um this episode very often, we'll have a note on terminology at the yeah. start, just because it is a very fraught, a very fraught issue.
0: So, for those who might be listening who are less familiar with the history in question, can you give us a brief overview of um, the Japanese American incarceration? What happened? Why did it happen? And how did people react to this event?
1: Right. So, I think it's important to remember that the the federal government was suspicious of Japanese Americans and other um, people from Axis nations even before the United States entered the war, so even before Pearl Harbor in December of 1941. So even so the FBI had for instance had been gathering lists of individuals usually community leaders anyone who had some ties even if they were tenuous ties to Japan even if they had gone, home to visit, gone back to Japan to visit for instance so these lists had, had already been compiled before the war. Or excuse me, before the United States entered the war, um, but Pearl Harbor, Harbor obviously, sort of celebrated the uh, the move to remove Japanese Americans, and the yeah you know, there are many scholars who go that through the whole the whole kind of step by step process of how this happened in much greater depth than I do in this book, but just for the sake of time, it really after after Pearl Harbor there was uh, intensified uh, moves to, or. Uh, uh, intensified calls to remove Japanese Americans specifically from p- the Pacific coast precisely because that is where the vast majority of the Japanese American population was concentrated so there certainly were Japanese Americans elsewhere in the United States but the focus was really on where they congregated which was along the Pacific coast and um, the the fu- fundamental logic was to remove any potential saboteurs uh, before they could do any harm internally so there was you know real Distrust and real paranoia that there were spies within this population that they were they were um, sharing secrets with with um, the Japanese government and so on and so forth. I should note, though, and I think it's important to remember that this was not universally uh, uh, touted or uh, advocated for among the U.S. government. So, for instance, the Attorney General at the time, Francis Biddle, was actually very much opposed to it there are other figures within the, the government that were not were much more hesitant about doing this but eventually executive order 9066 was of fdr signed this in uh on february 19th 1942 there was generally widespread support for this uh for the, the measure although as i note in my book there there were definitely individuals who were who were very hesitant to be removing japanese americans uh, precisely because they had been so important to the agricultural uh, industry in California or Washington and other natural resource industries. So there were definitely sort of these smaller pockets of, of support for not removing Japanese Americans, or at least um, doing so at, at a more opportune time that would, wouldn't disrupt the harvest for instance. So, uh, so, so, Definitely widespread support, although, again, there were some individuals who who expressed um, opposition to the the removal of Japanese Americans.
0: And you argue in the book that any environmental history of the Japanese-American incarceration has to actually begin before anybody was forcibly removed from the West Coast. So can you start us off there and tell us a bit about the relationships that these people had with the non-human world prior to removal?
1: Yeah, so I think, you know, starting in the late 19th century when Japanese immigration really began in larger numbers to the United States, um, very often the immigrants were involved in natural resource-based industries. So they were farmers, uh, they were fishermen, uh, they worked in the logging industry. So they had been already very deeply tied to the land along the Pacific coast and already had experienced a great deal of animosity. I think, uh, for instance, we... A familiar topic among sort of uh, a familiar topic of pre-war Japanese American history is the fact that California and many, many other Western states passed alien land laws, uh, to essentially bar, uh, Japanese immigrants from buying, buying land precisely because they had, they were seen as, uh, economic competition for, for white farmers. So, uh, so anyway, so before the war, they, they were cultivating not necessarily cultivating a lot of land, but they were certainly very successful in the in particular crops. So, celery, strawberries, for instance, were areas where they had sort of become very successful and uh, really produced a lot of the region's uh, uh, crops in those in those areas. So, as a result, when removal started to happen, you know, after the issuance of Executive Order. There were definitely concerns within the federal government about what is this going to look like. We are starting we're entering a war in which the need for food is going to be heightened. We have all these troops to to feed, and right when we have a heightened need for more foodstuffs, we're sending away these very important producers and taking and removing them from this productive farmland. So that was definitely a concern. Among, uh, among many individuals in the federal government and also regionally at the start of, of, um, of the removal process. Uh, and, and certainly they were also very important farm laborers. They were working in very specialized, uh, areas. So I talk about in the book, uh, the San Joaquin, uh, kind of peat, uh, peat island area. And, um, that, that the, the farmers in the area were really lobbying to keep their japanese american neighbors around because they have very specialized knowledge of the, these these environments that these are very delicate areas to farm you couldn't just bring in anyone right because that had been the argument oh we can just replace these workers we can get other people to take their take their spots and these farmers are saying well no it's not that simple you know this person has been working on my farm for 20 years it's taken a long time to train mm-hmm. him in the the sort of intricate phases of farming this land. So they they had very specialized knowledge of the environment as well.
0: Let's talk about place for a bit. Where did the state remove Japanese Americans to exactly during the incarceration? And how were these sites themselves important factors in uh, the environmental history of this phase in American history?
1: Right. So there were 10 camps um, that were administered by the War Relocation Authority, the WRA. Which was a federal civilian agency um, established, you know, in March, I think, of, of 1942. Uh, so the ten camps, eight of them were in the inland west. So um, two in California, one in Idaho, one in Wyoming, uh, one in Utah, two in Arizona, uh, one in Colorado, and then there were two camps in uh, two camps in Arkansas. So it was a pretty extensive process trying to figure out where to put these camps. The WRA had particular criteria. Uh, Obviously, the camps could not be close to any military installations. They wanted them to be moved from the coast, but there was also need for infrastructure. So they wanted to make sure that there was some um, proximity to the railroad or or highway for transportation. There was some uh, need, obviously some need for water. All of the camps uh, had agricultural programs. So it's not surprising that the few few of the camps were located on areas of reclamation land where there were there was access to irrigation. Uh, they needed access to electricity, so there were definitely some practical considerations. But by and large, all the camps are located in very desolate, arid locations, and so this is important because Jap- the Japanese Americans were coming from a very temperate, much more temperate location yeah. along the Pacific Coast. So they were not accustomed to living in an area where they had, you know, freezing temperatures for several months a year or scorching temperatures for several months a year. So uh, those adjustments were difficult. And again, as I noted earlier, when we first started chatting, uh, it's something that Japanese Americans wrote about and noticed immediately. Oh wow, this is really cold, or this is really dry, or there's nothing green here. I'm so I'm much more used to Puget Sound or the San Francisco Bay Area where you know things are blooming every spring. Like so that that perception was very uh, perception of their environment was something uh, that is very notable in their memoirs and oral histories that they noticed that how different these environments looked, and I think that really shaped their experiences.
0: And in the book, you provide a number of images as well, both the kind of the more famous Ansel Adams pictures sure. as well as a lot of, of lesser well-known and archival photos as well that really drive home the point that you're making. There's a lot of pictures of mud, for instance, and of dust storms, mm-hmm. for example. And it really makes this point that place really mattered here, that the environment that these camps were in really, as you said, shaped the experiences and the memories of, of this part of their lives.
1: Right. I mean, that's, and it's a point that, that I, I make in the book. And and again, other people have made this point too, that, uh, I think, you know, this was already, uh, an oppressive situation, right? These are individuals without due process removed from their homes based on suspicion, based on race. Uh, so already they're feeling very, uh, you know, they're already feeling oppression. They're already feeling, they're already feeling despondency. But then to be removed from their homes and then placed in these really desolate and God forsaken places as some people. And that's quoting from sources, right? Like I felt like I, and I could, you know, rattle off all sorts of metaphors and, and terms used to describe the camps. And they really felt that like, I think that what I argue is that um, this sort of amplified their feelings of despondency. It amplified their outrage about what was happening. That not only were they removed from their homes, but they were sent to these places, from their perception, that were really in the middle, that were, that that the environment itself was oppressive, in addition to the sort of act itself of being removed from their homes, was also
0: oppressive. And labor was another way that Japanese Americans experienced these new environments. So, can you tell us how the environment shaped uh, camp work and mediated the relationship that these people had to their new temporary homes and the work that they did there?
1: Yeah, so... The one of, one of the many ironies of incarceration is that Japanese Americans had to work in order to provide for their own confinement. Uh, you know, these camps, most camps housed anywhere from 8,000 to 13,000 people, each of the camps. And of course, they're, they're in these very desolate locations. There's no way there was going to be a big enough local labor force. Obviously, it's the war as well when there's heightened need for labor in other arenas. So, so the Japanese Americans had to work to essentially maintain the camps that were confining them. So that's one of the ultimate ironies. Um, and so add to that irony, the fact that they were being asked to work in very desolate, oppressive um, environments and locations that in which the environment um, sort of amplified their labor responsibilities. So I have a chapter that gives a couple of examples of that. So one was from um, Topaz in central Utah, the soil there was uh, very alkaline. They knew this from the start, not really the best place for agriculture. Uh, there were lots of problems with the soil. And yet, uh, there they were. And uh, they installed, you know, ex- well, all the camps had uh, extensive uh, uh, sanitation systems, water systems, et cetera. And so the, the pipes that were installed were not first rate to begin with. And as a result, Given the soil, the, the pipes start to, started to corrode. And so they, for almost immediately, there were you know, reports of leaks and various various puddles all over the camps. And it became a major problem for the administrators of this camp. And so they needed to fix them, right? So, and who was going to do this? Well, they needed Japanese Americans who were confined at this camp to provide the labor to fix these pipes. And many Japanese Americans bolt, right? They were like, why would we want to do, do this gross, disgusting work? You know, they're digging up soil, they're working in the muck. They rejected, many of them rejected this work, and they much preferred doing something else rather than fixing these leaks that were just about everywhere in the camps. So I think that is one good example about how the environment, so in this particular case, the this, this soil of the Topaz camp. How that shaped their labor and in this case how it shaped their sort of labor resistance. So they very much resisted these jobs. And actually the, the camp administrators essentially had to force people to work on the pipeline repair crews because they couldn't get enough Japanese to actually volunteer for these positions. So eventually they sort of had to compel them to to fix the pipelines. But you know it was dirty, it was gross it was and they would say look, you know, it's your responsibility to provide water for us didn't ask to be sent here so we're not gonna volunteer for this for this this labor
0: and as you mentioned before many of those who were relocated to the camps and incarcerated in the camps they worked in farming and agriculture in the years before the war as well Did that knowledge and that method of labor did it transfer at all to camp life and camp work? And what challenges did people face when they attempted agriculture in these new environments? You alluded a little bit to this, but could you maybe talk a little bit more in depth? Sure. Yeah,
1: I think the um, yeah, so all of the camps have farms, and that was that was an important uh, element of the camps from the get go. So the 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 WRA administrators they wanted these camps to be somewhat self-supporting. They, the idea was that, first of all, we have all of these very skilled farmers, horticulturists, farm laborers. Let's let's put their labor to good use, and in the process, we can uh, minimize food costs. So this was a time of war. They did. They wanted to minimize criticism that that running these camps was costing a lot of money. That they were siphoning food that should be sent to the troops abroad, so on and so forth. So all of the camps had really extensive. Operations. And um, in some cases, so I don't uh, focus on the Heart Mountain camp in my book, but Heart Mountain actually had a very successful agricultural program. uh, And actually, many of the camps had very successful agricultural programs. They overcame a lot of challenges. One of the major challenges that the farmers faced is that they were used to farming in very different um, conditions. Again, they had been farming in California, they had been farming in the Pacific Northwest, where um, in some cases they didn't need irrigation. Well, you put them in these very arid locations in Idaho or, or Wyoming or Utah, and they needed ir- irrigation. They didn't know how to irrigate. So that's, for instance, that's one thing that I, I, I found in sources that um, there was WRA officials would critique Japanese-Americans' farming skills because they over-irrigated the crops, for instance. It's like, well... They didn't know how to irrigate because they had not needed to irrigate in many cases before then. So their tra- their skill, their agricultural skills, didn't directly transfer um, over to these new places. But they certainly learned, and they learned to adapt. They learned to um, to uh, work within these new conditions. But it certainly took some time, and it wasn't again. It was not automatic. Very often, at some of the camps, they would bring in local agricultural extension experts to to discuss with them, you know, how do you farm in Utah? How is that different than farming in California, for instance? Uh, In some cases, uh, Japanese Americans had never farmed before, and they were now farming. And for the WRA, they saw this as a way to essentially give them job training. Well, you can learn to be a farmer, and you can learn to... Learn all sorts of uh, strategies, and this could help you find a job uh, when you leave the camp. So, so it wasn't just the farmer, pre-war farmers who were farming the camps. It was also a wide range of people who were working the farms.
0: In the book, you talk about the idea of environmental patriotism. What was that? And I guess, kind of, the broader question that I'm getting at is: how did government officials, and particularly Japanese Americans themselves, how did they think about their incarceration? And the environment in which they found themselves. How do they think about it within the context of the war effort, and in the context of World War II America?
1: Yeah. So environmental patriotism was. Um, to be honest, this is a chapter that kind of surprised me. I wasn't really looking <laughs> for hmm. a more sort of cultural, um, cultural kind of uh, perspective when I was doing my research, but the rhetoric became so uh, so evident as I did more research. And looking at a couple of different things, so like victory gardens, for instance, you know, victory gardens were being grown by Americans all across the nation, and it was real. And if you look at anything about victory gardens, it's very much imbued with this idea of patriotism. So I use the term environmental patriotism to describe um, a variety of activities in which Japanese Americans were being asked to interact with, or harness, or somehow alter the environment as a way to show and display their patriotism and devotion. So I'll talk briefly about Victory Gardens. as one example. In that chapter, the bigger, the more evident, the, the bigger and more fully fleshed out example is the Waiuli, uh, the growing of Waiuli, which is a, a woody shrub that was uh, deemed to be a possible rubber substitute, an uh, an agricultural rubber substitute or in it there was it was grown extensively. There was quite an extensive Waiuli uh, project at the Manson Art Camp. Uh, so, you know, I'd run across very early in my research, I ran across, uh, the, the Waiulu project and sort of very dutifully photocopied and took many photos of all this, all this material. And as I, when I returned to it, as I started writing, it became very clear how much this project was, was couched in this patriotic rhetoric, both by the federal government, the federal officials, and also by, um, Japanese Americans, also by uh, Robert Emerson, who is a Caltech scientist who uh, was very sympathetic to the Japanese American plight and really spearheaded the nansen R project so um, so that's why I sort of I developed this chapter and so I think what I'm trying to get at in this particular chapter is the ways in which the uh is the way in which the federal officials as well as japanese Americans. Pursued this project that very much altered the landscape of Mansonar. They're growing acres of rubber, and yet they and they really saw this as a way to um, show that they were patriotic. So this is a time of nationwide rubber shortages. People were rubber rationing. There were rubber drives, scrap rubber drives, uh, and so Japanese Americans. Some saw this as a way, or at least they presented it as a way. For them to say look you know we're incarcerated behind barbed wire but look at us we are doing our part for the war effort and we're actively engaging with the, the physical environment to find a way so that the UN, united states is not dependent on foreign sources of rubber so we can be self we can be independent of these other sources of rubber and um and federal officials too also saw this as a way for Japanese Americans to prove their patriotism to really highlight look we're not oppressing Japanese Americans in these camps we're actually giving them the opportunity to express and show their patriotism to show their devotion to the United States but I think one thing to keep in mind and this was evident in a email exchange I had with one of the one of the uh, sons of one of the scientists who participated in the Wai Project is that you know he really highlighted to me that Many of these men did not feel that they needed to prove their patriotism because they saw themselves as Americans. They were, they were Americans, and they were of course going to do what they could to contribute to the war effort. Uh, so they didn't have anything to prove. They were simply participating in uh, an activity that was going to potentially help the nation. So it's 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 complicated and it's fraught. But I thought it would it really warranted a, a separate chapter just simply to highlight. Uh, the ways in which the environment intersected with uh, Japanese American, as well as federal efforts to to show the ways in which Japanese Americans were American, and to highlight their, their their active engagement with the war effort.
0: And on a bit of a similar note, you also uh, point out, rightly, I would say, that the camp environments could also be and sometimes were sources of joy as well as of struggle and oppression so can you tell us a bit about that and how japanese americans found solace and even fun in and around the camps i particularly in in this chapter like the discussion of scouting in the context of incarceration in the 1940s
1: sure and i don't go into great detail on the on the scouts um but yeah i think so in addition to scouts, I talk about you know, swimming and hiking and gardening. So I think, yeah, I think it was really important for me to highlight the ways in which the environment, though again, very different from, from where they came, was also something that they saw as a as a site of, of of social interaction, as a way to find solace. So there's many uh examples of Individuals who would go swimming in local rivers or local, even local reservoirs. Um, they would go hiking in the surrounding area. They would, um, they would go fishing, and then the gardening, of course, is is something that is I think quite striking. So here, in these very desolate locations, they were actively altering and transforming the areas in between their barracks into these beautiful oases. really if you see some of the pictures they're really quite striking how ambitious some of these gardens were and some were quite modest but some were really ambitious and there's all sorts of wonderful stories of japanese americans who would go on collecting expeditions and you know dig up trees and you know halt rocks or they would order perennial or annual seeds from you know a catalog and grow flowers so they were really trying to, um, I think, keep themselves occupied for sure, but also trying to um, create beauty in their their um, in their immediate surroundings, as well as to find beauty in their immediate surroundings. And I think um, that really speaks a lot to their resilience and their desire to um, many of their desires to uh, make the most or make the best of what was what was obviously a, a very difficult time
0: how did uh japanese american incarceration end and where did those who were formerly incarcerated go after leaving the camps at the various stages when people did begin to leave the camps and then once people did leave how did they adjust to their new environments and to their new homes in the cases of those that could not for any number of reasons go back to where they had originally come from so internment
1: doesn't doesn't you know, necessary. I mean, I could give you a specific date when it ended for sure, but I think there's a sort of a slow, um, continual process by which Japanese Americans were leaving the camps starting in 1943. So the camps were, were built and Japanese Americans were removed in 1942, but by 1943, the War Relocation Authority was, was allowing and, and, and eventually encouraging Japanese Americans to leave. So for a variety of reasons. So uh, for military service, for instance, uh, to go to school. So even younger college students were, were leaving to go to college. And then eventually to actually take jobs. Certainly not on the Pacific Coast, because they were still excluded from the Pacific Coast, but they were taking more time jobs and other jobs in the Midwest and the East Coast and so on. So this was starting again in 1943, and the camps were still actively you know, under under operation. So, uh, so, so that was happening. So even by 44, 45, the camps, the camp population was, was definitely. The, by the end of 1944, um, the federal government made an announcement that the Pacific coast would be reopened starting January 2nd of 1945. And so at that point you had more and more people sort of plotting their, um, their, next step right so where would they go so the pacific coast was now going to be reopened should we go back to the pacific coast should we go elsewhere and so you had a lot of families trying to figure out what to do next and all of the camps were most of the camps were essentially closed by the fall of 1945 so um one can say that would be the ending point so they had a lot of options right so before 1945 or january 2nd 1945 they could not go back to the Pacific Coast. so there were some individuals who were Again, as I said, taking jobs in the East Coast, and the West, some staying in the Interior West. And after 1945, they could go back to the Pacific Coast. But in a lot of cases, uh, those individuals who did have land before the war, um, if they were lucky, someone, they found someone to look after their land and maybe they could return um, to land that was in pretty good shape. But very often, even those individuals who had land, would they were returning to land that had been neglected that was overgrown, that you know was really in bad shape so that that for instance is the case in um the hood river valley for instance in Oregon, where um landowners returned to orchards that had been
0: completely
1: neglected during the war so that was difficult uh for those who didn't own land it was very difficult to find land and to find housing for that matter there's a real housing crunch at the end of the war and after the war as more veterans were returning to the to urban areas. So it was very difficult for them to find housing. So um, so it was very dif- difficult for them to adjust and actually go back back go back go home. The vast majority of Japanese Americans did return to the Pacific coast, but there were some who, and I talk about in this in one of my final chapters, uh, who actually tried to farm in the interior west. So a bunch of farmers, for instance, went to Colorado where they tried to farm there, but they found not unlike the experience when they were in the camps themselves that it was very difficult to farm in Colorado or it was it was different it was very different than what they were used to and they didn't quite understand how people farmed in Colorado how could you farm only a few months of the year how could you farm when you never knew when you might have a frost or when it might snow and destroy your seedlings and so on and so forth so a lot of those individuals were sort of biding their time like okay I'll farm here for a little bit but the minute I can find a piece of land back in California, I'm gonna go back. There were, of course, some who stayed, who really actually liked um, the conditions and felt that they had a better chance of um, readjusting to post-war life if they stayed in Colorado or other places in the west. So you have a wide range of experiences, but what I really wanted to highlight is that even with the end of internment, it wasn't just, okay, close the book, everyone goes home, everyone's good. In fact, there were um, lots of challenges in some cases, uh, they were displaced in yet another, in another way. Maybe the first displacement was when they were removed from California or the West Coast but in the camps, and sometimes that second displacement happened when they left the camps and went somewhere that was new to them again. So I really wanted to highlight the ways in which the end of the war, the the technical end of the incarceration policy, didn't stop the sort of the, the in didn't stop their their feelings of environmental displacement in some, in some instances.
0: Yeah, and uh, you talk about a couple examples towards the end of the book of people who were able to return to the farms, for instance, that they had left originally only to find that they had, you know, they'd lain fallow or they'd become yeah. overgrown or mm-hmm. they'd had tenants that hadn't really taken care of them. And I thought that was just... That was a it really underscored the point that you were trying to make that this didn't just end that it was an ongoing process for a lot of people that had been incarcerated.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, I, yeah, and I think it's it's too easy to think that okay, the war's over. Yeah. And I think this is it, this happens in a lot of discussions of World War II, right? The war is over, and there might be a, some sort of brief discussion of the post-war, um, you know, the immediate post-war years, but it sort of it doesn't doesn't go into great depth, right? So I really wanted to highlight, highlight that the, you know, I argue the overarching argument in the book is that incarceration was this environmental process. And I wanted to highlight that that process continued into 46 and 47 and beyond.
0: Yeah. What became of the sites of incarceration and of the camp environments in the, the years and decades afterwards? And how did environment shape the memory of Japanese American incarceration, both in terms of how individuals that were involved remembered it, as well as the kind of broader public memory of this event in American history.
1: Right. So um, the camps were essentially, uh, you know, dependent on the sort of the ownership of the camps prior, right? So again, some of the camps were Bureau of Reclamation sites. Uh, Very often some of that land, the improved land, was auctioned off to returning veterans, uh, many of the sites were simply abandoned or their lumber was repurposed for, for, um, re- again, for returning veterans. I talk about that in the context of Manzanar, where they took apart the barracks and auctioned off the lumber to, to returning veterans. So by and large, the camps were essentially abandoned. And it wasn't really until the 60s, 70s that there was this sort of interest in and desire to sort of return to those sites that's not entirely surprising. I think the, the narrative that of, of Japanese American history is that after the war, those who had experienced incarceration, they really just wanted to put those years behind them. And they didn't talk much about the war. They didn't talk much about their incarceration. They sort of very, very quickly became the model minority by the 1960s. Uh, but I think, again, by the late 60s, early 70s, the, the, the children and grandchildren of the camp survivors began to take an interest in the warriors so the first pilgrimage to manzanar the first pilgrimage to any of the camps really or formal pilgrimage was in 1969 and that was organized by children of of incarcerees so i think uh what what really has struck me about about the the camps as they are now is that the environment's really important to the experience so a few of the camps, uh, former campsites, are now um, administered by the National Park Service the National Storage Sites. And, you know, Manzanar is, again, sort of the probably most well-known. It's very important for the Manzanar administrators, and they've made this abundantly clear, that the feeling of desolation, of isolation, is an important part of the visitor experience. So if you go to Manzanar, there's a reconstructed barrack, there are other remains, you can take a, a sort of auto tour of the Remains of the gardens, but the literature also highlights the fact that they want visitors to experience the isolation and desolation as well. So the environment is really important to that experience. Um, a couple of the camps are are uh, have museums that are run by sort of private foundations. Uh, so so that kind of uh, sort of public history has has continued both on the federal level as well as sort of the local private level as well. But again, I think it's 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 really for all whether it's a, a private um, private foundation or the federal government, the environment is really critical. Right? So they want uh, to they want visitors to understand the the physical conditions under which Japanese Americans lived. So I think that's that's really critical to those efforts. Um, in terms of sort of memories, I think there are numerous. I mean, I could have written a lot more about the memories of incarceration and the importance of it. what I do in my epilogue is I give uh, give two specific examples, one in which um, engagement with the environment was very much about the Pacific Coast and one in which it was very much about the, the place of incarceration. So the example I give the first uh, one example is the uh, Kugita family. Uh, Yasusuke Kugita had a very beautiful garden at Minadoka and at the end of the war he actually transported some of the rocks that he had collected in Manadoka back to his home in Seattle so he sort of maintained this active engagement with this garden that he had created in incarceration um, and it, those rocks are still um, you know they're still in the possession of his sons uh, and the other example was uh, the Harui Gardens in this this is a family in Bainbridge Island Washington Beautiful gardens, abandoned during the war, came back, and the son decided to sort of um, revitalize the garden uh, that his father had that his father father had constructed. So, two stories of incarceration and two different environments in which their memories were connected to, it, whether what was left behind or where they were confined. And again, those are just two examples. There are many other really poignant stories about how the environment really um, affected, affected um, the memories of Japanese Americans. And the title of that story is, um, of that chapter, excuse me, is Emanating from the Soil. And that's a quote from, from these uh, hearings or that were held in the early 2000s when they were talking about um, the, a federal program that was going to, designate money to sort of um, designate money towards the campsites and towards public educational um, projects. And someone said, you know, the history of incarceration emanates from the soil. And that really stuck with me because I think that really encapsulates many Japanese Americans' memories of the experience
0: is that it was deeply tied to the soil, to the land itself perhaps you just answered this question, but I'm wondering, and you know, this is a great book that makes several really important points, but if there's one takeaway that you hope readers get for reading this book, what might that be? Well, like, like
1: you said at the beginning of our, of our talk, um, this is a well-worn topic. There are many, many articles, many, many books written about incarceration, but it's very often told from a political, a legal, a social, a cultural point of view. And so the one takeaway that I hope that readers will have is that this is also an environmental story. Uh, I don't think you can fully understand or completely understand the incarceration experience, whether from the perspective of Japanese Americans or the perspective of federal administrators. I don't think you can fully understand it without understanding the ways in which the environment shaped uh, those experiences. So the administrators of the camp, they had to contend with a very fickle, unpredictable natural world. It was not easy to administer these camps uh, at any given moment. They were often trying to battle uh, you know one one problem to the next. You know they might solve leaking pipelines one minute, but then the next minute there would be um, something else that they had to contend with. and likewise, uh, Japanese Americans also had their experience of the war years of the camps was very much shaped by the environment as well. So that's just that would be my key takeaways to understand this in a more compre- this episode in a more comprehensive manner that it was indeed the most one of the most egregious violations of civil liberties in American history. But the environment was very much part of that
0: entire process. So, Connie, I know that uh, this book has been out for something, I think, just under two months now, but Mm -hmm. on the New Books Network, we always like to get a preview of what is coming next from our authors. So do you have a next project in mind? Are there any questions about the past that you're going to try to find answers to in the coming months and years?
1: So I think I have always been interested, in, and this is evident in my first book as well, and obviously in this book. I've really always been very interested in the ways in which the environment, sh- the environment has shaped social inequalities in the American West. So that's still sort of a really big question that I, I, I would like to continue um, delving into. So one thing that I am considering right now, a new project grows out of this, this book, in fact. And it's, um, so there is a fungal disease called Valley Fever. That is caused by the inhalation of these microscopic spores, and it can cause. Very often, it causes just sort of mild flu-like symptoms, but it can cause. Um, it can be fatal if it if the spores sort of disseminate to other parts of the body. It can cause meningitis, and um, as I was doing research on the book, there are actually cases of, particularly at Gila River, which is an area where this particular uh, fungus is endemic. At Hilo River, there were many Japanese Americans who were afflicted with Valley Fever. So, um, again, talk about emanating from the soil. Here is a, a disease yeah. that is literally emanating from the soil and making Japanese Americans sick. So, as I uh, so there's something. So, I retur- actually just presented on this at the Western History Association conference. And um, one thing, as I did more research, is I found that well, actually, this is a disease that has been around, or has been uh, scientists have been researching since the late 19th century. There have been many other groups that have had problems with valley fever, including um, other wartime groups. So, for instance, German prisoners of war who were sent to work camps in the San Joaquin Valley and in Arizona uh, also got valley fever. Uh, other migrants to the west. so during the 1930s we have the migration, uh, Oki migration to California. Many of those migrants, because they had not been previously exposed to the fungus, they also became sick. So anyway, so I'm sort of kind of toying around with that project. So it really does grow out of the Japanese American book. Um, It still has a very clear connection to the Japanese American book, but it also speaks to this bigger question about how the environment um, shapes social, these broader social
0: inequalities. And, uh, the environmental history of medicine is sort of having a bit of a moment right now. As it well. is it sounds like you're very much kind of tapped into that too. So I'll look forward to hearing more about that in the future.
1: Yeah, and it may it may be an article. It maybe it will be something larger, but it is something that I'm I'm certainly intrigued intrigued by. So and and it, and to be honest, I I'm still really interested in writing more about the Japanese American incarceration. So this is a, a way to sort of continue my interest in this area.
0: Dr. Connie Chang is a professor of history and environmental studies at Bowdoin College. Her newest book is Nature Behind Barbed Wire, an environmental history of the Japanese-American incarceration, which came out in September of 2018 with Oxford University Press. Connie, it's a great book, and thank you so much for coming on the New Books Network to talk about it with us today.
1: Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure.